0: Please, people of God, I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11, page 370, I believe, in the Adoration Bibles. As we look now to conclude our study of the life and reign of King Solomon. As the classic novel begins, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, yet it was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. We had everything going before us, and yet we had nothing going before us. These, of course, are the opening lines of the famous Tale of Two Cities, but these lines illustrate our illustrative of our passage this morning as we consider not the Tale of Two Cities, but rather The tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom torn in two. Everything was going well. Success was booming in the kingdom. It was the best of times. But now it was the worst of times. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem, And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house of Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran. And took men with them from Paran, and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt, who gave him a house, and assigned him an allowance of food, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage a sister of his own wife, the sister of Tapanes, the queen. And the sister of Tapanes bore him Genubath his son, whom Tapanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh, but when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart, that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. God also raised up an adversary to him, Razon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became a leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Heda did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, was an Ephraim of Zerudah, a servant of Solomon. His mother's name was Zeruah, a widow who lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment. And the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him rule all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and will give it to you ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over all Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, then I will be with you. It will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So far, the reading of God's own word may bless it to us as we meditate upon it this morning. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Surely God has been gracious to Israel in these 40 years of Solomon's reign. God has been gracious to Israel, to his church, and to his kingdom, as he's been yet working all things together for good, as he continues this story that's going to culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. I had to keep that in my mind as I came to this concluding narrative of the life of Solomon. Because we finally come now to the end of Solomon's life and reign, we can't help but be struck by the author of 1 Kings' sober warning that we can live our whole lives as children of God. We can live our our whole lives as those who love the wisdom of God. And yet if we don't take heed of ourselves, and how great our fall can really be. As I alluded to at the beginning of our series, the the perpetual question that the author of 1st and 2nd Kings would press upon the people of Israel is this. Who will be king over Israel? Who will reign in perfect righteousness? Who will establish and and maintain justice and rest on on every side of the kingdom? And as the author outlines, the end of the life of David, and then the life of Solomon, and all the, the subsequent kings to come, the answer is always the same, isn't it? Who will be the king that Israel needs? Who will reign faithfully on God's behalf? The answer is always somebody else. Not this one, not this one. Not David, not Solomon. Just look at the way his life turned out. No, it's got to be another As we read about all God's righteous requirements for kings in Deuteronomy 17, how they must not act like the kings of the world around them, how they must keep God's law before them all the days of their lives. And as we come to understand more and more of God's perfect holiness, how he does not and will not tolerate half-hearted devotion or or lackluster obedience and devotion, we come to recognize all the more what our catechism says in Lord's Days 5 and 6 that That this king, this mediator, must be truly human and truly righteous, and yet he must be more powerful than all creatures. He must be more than a mere man. He must also be true God. Nor that he might earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. That's the kind of king and mediator that Israel needed then, and that's the kind of king that we need today. Israel needed a king who would be their perpetual salvation from the wickedness of, of the world, now living in a sin-cursed world. They needed a king who would govern them by God's word and spirit, who would guard them and keep them safe and, and true freedom. Only this kind of king, whose, whose heart and whose loyalties were undivided, only this kind of king whose heart remained truly, wholly devoted to the Lord, only this kind of king could accomplish for us that we could not otherwise accomplish for ourselves, namely a a unified kingdom of abundant blessing that that will flourish into all eternity for a divided heart only brings division in the kingdom, and divided loyalties only foster brokenness and pain and that's what we see in our passage this morning, as we can see at the end of solomon's life and reign over israel solomon's divided heart sadly brings about division and pain in the kingdom as we see how his divided heart taints the kingdom our passage begins now king solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of pharaoh moabite ammonite edomite sidonian hittite women Women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon clung to these in love. Sadly, congregation would seem as though Solomon has forgotten his first love. What's happened to the Solomon of of chapter 3, verse 3, where he found that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in all the, the statutes of his father David. What's happened to the psalm of chapters 5 through 8, who, who built this wonderful temple for the Lord, and who, and who prayed for the people of the Lord? What's happened to the psalm of chapter 10, the, the wise king who took pity on that queen from afar and answered all her questions? For ten chapters, the author of 1 Kings has been singing Solomon's praises, alluding only here and there in small places of, of darker days to come. But now as Solomon has grown old, he has begun to forget his first love in exchange for other loves. Solomon has a divided heart. Solomon has had drastic spiritual heart failure. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. In these opening verses, congregation, we need to notice the the subtlety of sin. Is it often the case that sin tends to creep in so slowly? How often does, don't our greatest falls into sin begin with a bent disposition in our hearts that, that leads to wandering thoughts in our minds that, that plays itself out with our hands? The Lord Jesus said in Mark 7, For from within, out of the heart of a man... From evil thoughts, of sexual immorality and adultery, of covetousness and wickedness, of pride and foolishness. And these things come from within, out of the heart, he said, and they defile a person. Heart is the key word of the opening verse of our passage, occurring some five times in verses two through four. Now, as you may recall from a number of weeks ago from Lord's Day 44, what this word is getting at, congregation, goes beyond mere emotions or feelings, those are part of it, but there's much more to it than that, because when the Bible speaks about the heart of a man, it's usually referring to his innermost will and affections of a man, what a man clings to, what he holds dear to, for better or for worse. When the Bible speaks about the heart of a man, it's usually speaking about the the steering wheel of his life. As goes the heart, so goes the man. And such is certainly the case here with King Solomon. You see, the author's frequent reference to Solomon's heart tells that he's fixating not so much on Solomon's external actions, but rather on a change that's taken place from within, that's at the root of these sinful actions. Over the years, Solomon's heart started to wander along the winding road of unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. And his infidelity was subtle because it happened slowly and gradually. It took years of of small compromises here and there. And slowly but surely, the the sensitivity of his conscience began to erode away until we read the the devastating words in verse 4, that when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon has not taken heed of his own counsel. Where he said in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. He's not taking heed of his own counsel, which he, which he pled earnestly with his sons, saying, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live, keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the springs of light. concluding narrative of Solomon's life is sobering congregation. And it ought to be. While many of these marriages very well may have been primarily political, the author of Kings isn't interested in Solomon's politics, but rather in his heart. Solomon clung to these in love said his heart was no longer wholly true or or wholly devoted to the Lord his God. His heart became divided as he began to share his heart with with his his love, with the false gods of the world. And so he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, whose, whose worship demanded even the sacrifice of children. And he built worship centers for these gods, and And allowed his wives to offer sacrifice to these gods in the land of Israel, just east of Jerusalem, where God had had promised to place his name in the temple forever. And as God warned in chapter 9, the people of Israel followed the example of their king. And so Solomon's heart tainted, polluted the rest of the kingdom. As Israel began to follow in his steps by giving themselves over to idols by dipping their own toes into the idolatrous waters of the world. And for his lack of whole devotion to God alone, for his gross violation of the first of the great commandments, to to love the Lord his God with all his heart, we read in verse 9 that the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, boys and girls, as we heard again this morning in the reading of God's law, our God is a jealous God. He will not simply tolerate lackluster, half-hearted devotion from his people. Not from Solomon and not from us. For it is from this righteous jealousy that the Lord became angry with King Solomon. Solomon. In God's astounding grace, he had appeared to him not once but twice. And in chapter 9, he had graciously warned him that if he or his sons would wander away and go to idols, and God would cut off Israel from the land and bring disaster upon them. Sadly and tragically, King Solomon failed the Lord. And so he failed the people of the Lord. And in verse 10, he did not keep what the Lord commanded. And so the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded to you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. And so it shall come to pass by the hand of the Lord. That the kingdom will be torn away, because of Solomon's divided heart for his Divided heart only brought about division in the kingdom. Such will be the impact of Solomon's life and legacy on the kingdom of God. This is what the author of 1 Kings is is pressing upon us this morning. The, The big question of our passage is not to ask whether or not Solomon was saved. But rather the sobering question of our passage is to ask, What's going on in my own heart? Where in my own life do I need to see the ugliest of my sin for what it really is and, and turn away from it? Where am I dipping my own toes into the idolatrous waters of the world? The author of First Kings hasn't recorded this sad and devastating accounts that we might point the finger at King Solomon, but rather to press upon us the need to guard our own hearts. He's recorded this story so that we might return our hearts away from the idols of the world, the idols of the sex and money of power and clout. He's recorded this story that we might we ourselves might repent of our half-hearted devotion and, and give unto the Lord our wholehearted thanksgiving and praise. This is what the people of Israel are to are to take from this account as they go into exile as they come out of exile. As they read the the history of Israel and, and why all these disasters were brought upon them. It was to cause them to rend their hearts and not their garments, as we heard in Joel, for our assurance of pardon. To give their hearts wholly and truly to the God who has given his heart wholly and truly to us. And our Lord Jesus Christ. Congregation, can you say that your hearts are wholly true to the Lord this morning? Can you say that your loyalties are undivided? If you can't say that, then the Spirit of Christ graciously summons you to repent, to give your allegiance over to the one true King. For as we sang a few moments ago, he's not only our true King, but he is also our tender shepherd who... Sought us and we were strangers, wandering from the fold of God. And to rescue us from danger, he interposed his precious blood. The glamour of the world and the idolatries of the world, they appeal to us, people of God. And we find them so compelling. We're we are prone to wander, aren't we? Prone to leave the God we love. Do you pray, therefore, take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Because of Solomon's wandering heart, the Lord is going to bring an end to rest on every side. He is going to raise up adversaries both from without as well as from within the kingdom. Which brings us to our second consideration for this morning, the kingdom torn apart by the divine hand. Verse 11, since this has been your practice, you have not kept my covenant, my statutes that I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. And then in verse 14, we see how God himself begins to bring this divine word to pass. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house of Edom. And so a competing kingdom rises up to conspire together against the kingdom of the Lord. The Edomites, you may know, were distant relatives of the people of Israel, weren't they boys and girls? They were the, the sons of Esau, Jacob's unbelieving brother. And so now as Hadad the Edomite rises up in, in revenge against the house of David, it's but a, a continuation of that old feud between Jacob and Esau, and that, that older story, that older feud between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And now as Hadad, and now Hadad is going to, to slither his way out of Egypt and, and into the kingdom of Israel, a new adversary, a new opponent, and, and the Hebrew, a new Satan. That's what Satan's name literally means. Boys and girls, the adversary, the opponent. From chapter 2, you'll remember that God had given Solomon rest in every side, but that will no longer be the case, will it? But from henceforth, the reign of Solomon, the, that peace is only going to be threatened and eventually will be taken away. Apparently from what we gather in verses 14 to 22, Hadad had never gotten over his hatred for King David. And so in Hadad's mind, David had had stolen, had taken what rightly belonged to him when when Joab invaded the land of the Edomites. And so he, he names his son Genubath, which, which has embedded in it the, the verb to steal in the Hebrew, a, a living testimony that that David had taken away what he believed rightly belonged to him. And so you imagine imagine, congregation, the sinful... Gladness in his heart upon hearing that, that David has finally been laid to rest and that Joab is dead. Now he can, can take a shot to seize his personal revenge against the house of David. And so he pleads with Pharaoh to let him go and thus becomes a sharp, piercing thorn in Solomon's side throughout the remainder of his reign. And while this side story might seem a rather little consequence, Hadad's revenge is going to be just one of the, the tragic consequences for Solomon's sin. In addition, it goes to show further the, the futility of Solomon's supposed alliances with the nations around him. Now even Pharaoh, the, the father of Solomon's wife, is going to allow Hadad, this satanic enemy, to, to wage war against Israel. How sad it must have been for the people of Israel. The very same hand that had once brought them out of Egypt now sends forth an adversary from Egypt to chastise her for her unfaithfulness. It's so not only is God going to chastise Solomon with Hada from the south, but also on from the north. And the people of Israel are going to reap what they have sown. And yet we recognize that even in his judgment and painful discipline, we must recognize that God is yet faithful to his promise according to his abundant grace. The Lord remains gracious and merciful, we see, even in his anger against the sins of his people. And we know that for anyone who is in Christ, the Lord's judgment against their sin is never punitive, but only ever corrective, even as a father disciplines his children in love. We've experienced that in our own lives, haven't we? How... God has used the consequence of our sin to draw us back into himself. And I imagine he must have done that for King Solomon as well. What an amazing thing it is, congregation, even in our own falls into sin. We've been chastised by the Lord. We can yet rest in, in the covenant promise that in substance we, we too share in Solomon's birth name, Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. And that in his grace and mercy, God Extends also to us the surety of that Second Samuel seventeen promise, where God promised David concerning Solomon that even though Solomon will commit iniquity and God will discipline him with the rods of men, yet his steadfast love would never depart from him. And so when we read of these various adversaries rising up against Solomon, we need not lose heart because at the end of the day, we recognize that the Lord is still on the throne. And it becomes increasingly clear to us here throughout these verses that the Lord himself, who is sovereign over all things, it's in fact the Lord who is bringing to pass this word that he had spoken to Solomon by his own divine hand. It's, it's the Lord who, who raises up Haydad. It's the Lord who raises up Raison so that the kingdom being humbled might return. the kingdom being humbled might return to the Lord their God with wholehearted devotion. And so it shall also be when the kingdom is divided. And even in in the devastation and ruin of division, God will yet preserve for himself a lamp for the sake of David. Perhaps most saddening of all, the kingdom is not only threatened by those on the outside, but also by those on the inside. We read in verse 26, that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Nefremite of Zerda, also lifted up his hand against the king. I trust that most of us know the account quite well. As Jeroboam is on his way out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, meets him along the way, wearing a a brand new cloak, and he takes off his cloak, and he tears into 12 pieces, symbolizing the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I will do this because they have forsaken me. And have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. The consequences for Solomon's divided heart, for his divided loyalties, will come into full fruition in the division of the kingdom. All the glory, all the the grandeur of the previous chapters. It's all going to be torn away. And here, too, we see from this prophet that this judgment against the kingdom of Solomon will come from the sovereign hand of the Lord. God will tear it away. Sadly, Jeroboam is all too glad to hear these words, and so... Rather than waiting for Solomon to die, to receive the king that God had promised, he instead uses a hijish prophetic word to justify immediate rebellion against the Lord's anointed. And yet history, we know, is going to remain in the Lord's control. Hadad and on are at the Lord's command. And God knows that the conspiracy is turning and And Jeroboam's mind, as soon as Jeroboam walks away from the prophet Ahijah, the Lord, you see, is not going to be paranoid by the the division of his people, but by the division of the kingdom. But He will, in fact, use this division to humble his people in order to draw them back to himself. And so we can rest assured, congregation, that God, though faithful in his judgment, is also faithful in his mercy and grace. Even when his people are unfaithful, God remains faithful for the sake of the promise to David to give him an everlasting kingdom. For as he said in Psalm 89, I will not lie to David. I will not renege on my promise to David. And this promise we need to see is in fact going to, to govern the rest of the history of the world. God keeping this promise to David for the sake of David. And so we see, finally, the kingdom yet triumphant in the Davidic hope. The kingdom is tainted by Solomon. It's torn apart by the divine hand of the Lord. And yet, this kingdom remains triumphant in the Davidic hope. God had promised David an everlasting kingdom, and God is not about to renege on that promise. Not only will he delay this judgment until after Solomon's death, but he will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand nor out of the hands of his sons. But according to verse 36, he will give one tribe to Solomon's son so that David may always have a lamp before the Lord in Jerusalem where God promised to put his name. And then he says in verse 39, he will afflict or humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. And all this is to say, people of God, that the Lord's affliction does not amount to the Lord's abandonment. Lord's affliction doesn't doesn't equate to his abandonment, but rather rays of hope always flicker behind even these dark clouds of judgment. The Davidic lamp will not be quenched. It will never burn out. Because that Davidic lamp, we know, has been shining from the very beginning. Not even the, the thickest darkness has been able to to overcome the light of that lamp, because that lamp, we know, is the Lord Jesus himself. As the Apostle Peter says in his second letter, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Although the kingdom of Israel will be humbled and afflicted, and although the kingdom is humbled and afflicted today in the midst of wandering hearts and divided loyalties and divisions, there yet remains this sure hope for future unity and permanent blessing in the kingdom of God. And that unity, that blessing, will come to full expression on the last day when, when King Jesus returns upon the clouds to, to conquer once and for all sin and Satan and death so that division may be no more. Solomon wasn't the king that Israel needed. And like David, Solomon is laid to rest with his fathers, a a wise man he may have been, writing the the book of Proverbs as a younger man and likely the book of Ecclesiastes as an older man, reflecting on on what had happened in his kingdom because of his sin and divided loyalties. He knew that the impact of his life and legacy would be the division of the kingdom, a sober warning for us this morning. King Solomon, you see, needed the king that his kingship pointed to every bit as much as we do today. And praise be to God that King Jesus' heart never wandered, never wavered, even for a moment. For therein lies our hope this morning. We have a king who, who came down, who, as we know, went into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the greatest kingdom adversary not for a moment did he blink an eye. Not for a moment did, did his heart succumb to the temptations of the adversary. But he remained all the days of his life pure in heart. He did that so that we, he might secure our place in the kingdom of God. And so he bids us this morning, congregation, to live our lives holy. Devoted to him by faith, he has earned for us that what he could, as the greater son, could only earn for us, the reward of resurrection glory, the reward of reigning with him for all eternity in the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, which doesn't need Solomon's temple because there says the apostle in Revelation 21, the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. King Jesus is the Lamb. The Lamb whose light in saving grace has shone into our hearts and has given us new hearts. King Jesus is the Lamb. The Lamb who was bruised and broken for us. The Lamb who was slain for us, he might restore to us all that we have broken and divided. Our Lamb, our Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God has kept his Psalm 132 promise of which we'll sing in a few moments. He has caused the might of David ever more and more to grow. On the path of his anointed, he has caused a lamp to glow. All his enemies shall perish. God will cover them with shame. But Christ's crown shall ever flourish. Blessed be his holy name. Amen. Let us pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we look at King's Psalm, and it's as though we're looking into a mirror. wherein we see our own hearts and all the ways in which we have often been half-hearted in our devotion to you, all the ways and all the times in which we have likewise dipped our toes into the idolatrous waters of the world. thinking we can give half our heart to you and, and half to ourselves and to our sins. Father, we pray that you would forgive us. That you would indeed continue to shine the light of the gospel into our hearts. That you would point our eyes ever to King Jesus, whose heart never wandered, whose heart remained pure and undivided. Father, we thank you that we can trust in this King that he is coming again. That we need not place our trust in princes and mortal men who cannot save. We know, Lord, that all their ways will perish and come to nothing when they perish in the grave. Lord, as the kingdom is afflicted on account of her sins in this world, we pray that you would use the afflictions of this life to humble us. No doubt, Lord, the trials of the last two years have perhaps exposed many of the idolatries of our hearts. What we valued most, and that hath exposed all the ways in which we grumble against you. Forgive us, Lord, if we grumble against you. May we always see your grace shining brightly behind the dark clouds of discipline and chastisement that we endure in this life. We pray, Lord, that this King, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come quickly that he would come today, that we would see him in all his glory, that he would bring us up into heaven and cast all our enemies into eternal condemnation forever, that we would be vindicated once and for all. But if he tarries, Lord, grant us faithfulness, grant us new hearts and wholehearted devotion to you, As we we seek to reflect the lamp of Christ to the world around us, he shines in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.